0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Maria Berbera, professor of art history at the State University of Rio de Janeiro, to talk about her new edited volume, Sacrifice and Conversion in the Early Modern Atlantic World, out this year, 2022, with Harvard University Press. Hello, Maria, and welcome to the program. Hi Anna. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's absolutely great to talk to
0: you. So how is Rio this morning? Rio is nice. We're in the beginning of spring now, so uh, on the opposite hemisphere from you. So we're just beginning that beautiful part of the year. We're in a nice moment, optimistic for our future, so always good.
1: Yeah, things are it's been an interesting time in Brazil lately. So absolutely. We have reasons to be. Hopeful. Wonderful. All right. Um, so we're here to talk about this really interesting edited volume, which caught my attention because, I mean, it's titled Sacrifice and Conversion. I was like, huh, how do these things go together? Um, and, and I the part of the answer lies with you. So let's talk about that. You're trained as an early modern art historian, but of the Mediterranean region, right? Early modern Italy and Iberia.
0: Um, so, how did your interest move into the Atlantic world? Right, so it's a good question. I mean, I, I studied in Europe, I did my PhD in, uh, in Europe, and I trained as a, an Italian Renaissance scholar, which, of course, uh, I was interested in the reception of classical tradition. So, this is already transcultural in a way because you are studying the ways in which values from pre Christian Mediterranean are received and re elaborated in, in a, let's say, in early modern Europe. So that's already a stretch. And then when I uh, finished my education, after some time I moved to Brazil, I started working at my hometown state university, Rio de Janeiro State University. And I realized, and I started studying Portugal. So I moved to Portugal, let's say from Italy to Portugal. And I started started studying uh, Portuguese uh, humanism, Portuguese literature, early modern literature always, um, uh, and visual arts. And from there, it was basically a step further to try to understand how the uh, Portuguese colonial expansion was uh, conceptualized and understood and portrayed in Europe, not necessarily by Portuguese, but also by printers uh, uh, all over Europe. So that kind of was a natural movement to think of, uh, let's say, the Atlantic world from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic world. Uh, And that coincided with the so-called global turn in art history. So people anyway, the beginning of the 21st century, starting to really uh, be more aware of the transcultural negotiations between different uh, societies and early modernity and being less Eurocentric and, uh, well, especially in my field, less Italo-centric, if that makes sense. So I guess this was a movement, it was my own movement, but it also coincided with a more general movement in academia. Right, and this turn to think
1: about uh, the connections between the old and world, old and new, old, so-called old and new worlds, and, mm-hmm. and really an interest in the transmission of culture, kind of that dialectic of creating a global mm-hmm. culture, which is really what the early modern world is about, right? Is this creation of... Of what we're like, what we we're going to inherit later, um, and, I, and this very fascinating and a really cool thing that you can read throughout this whole collection, um, and in your introduction is the idea that like just the misunderstandings we see when these people meet right? Europeans come over, they're utterly baffled, like fascinated but horrified and just utterly baffled by what they found. Right, so. Then, then they bring the stunning misunderstanding back home. So, like, what what kind of ideas are floating around about the new world mm-hmm. as, as in the early years of discovery and interaction?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you put it very, very beautifully. I think it's a time of, of uh, huge changes in Europe in European society. Uh, so, so the first thing, well, we we have these two, uh, let's say, historiographical fields areas. You have the Uh, early modernists working with the Renaissance and with the reception of classical tradition and we have uh, uh, the uh, people working in colonial studies. And very often these two fields even though these, uh, these events, these phenomena happened at the same time, these two fields don't always intersect. So you have really a, a historiographical niche for people working with colonial, with European colonial expansion, and another one for people working with what we most traditionally understand as the Renaissance. So Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, etc. So, so this was the, what, one, one thing that was, let's say, uh, uh, at the beginning, let's say, was a common denominator of this newer research uh, in early modern period is to try and connect these two spheres, and understand, uh, well, try to figure out what it meant to be uh, uh, global. What was uh, globalism about in the early modern period? And of course, it was a period in which uh, uh, cultures were being brought together in a very radical way. So the same, you you, you could have in a same person, a same uh, 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 navigator, a same. Uh, um, a seaman that would go to Turkey, to Goa, and to Portuguese America in one lifetime. It would be possible. So you could go to the southern to seas. Uh, of of uh, the Arabian Peninsula and also to to the South Atlantic, so this is a period of, of very intense uh, globalization. This is this is something that needs to be uh, that we need to call the attention and to need to understand the mindset of these people. And sometimes, in the period of one generation, you have a complete change in worldview and the Weltanschauung of this uh, of these uh, uh, generations. So. Um, uh, what, 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 but at the same time, what you have in the 16th century is a period of extreme violence because you have the reform, the religious reform, and you have all the wars that are related to territorial dispute, to dynastic dispute, to uh, uh, to religion, of course. And so, the 16th century is actually one of the most violent centuries. In history, in terms of battle, you know, in terms of massacres and genocides, uh, and the numbers are terrifying. Of course, it's always difficult to estimate how many people died in wars and famine, but uh, the numbers are definitely the numbers that can be estimated. Absolutely terrifying. So at the same time, you have, so, and this is a bit funny because in a way, in historiography, when you think of the Renaissance, you think the violence and the background, right? You think like the Sistine Chapel and this period of harmony and of, of peace and rationality and illumination. But this is really not always the case. In fact, it's a very violent period. So this is the first thing that we need to bear in mind. The 16th century is extremely violent in Europe. And that it coincides, this violence coincides with the colonial expansion of uh, of Europe, of certain European uh, uh, nations and political and commercial entities. So, and they are, as you just said, confronted with societies that have their own uh, codes and their own cultures and languages, and which are very varied and multifaceted. So, in a way, what the book, what many of the articles in the book try to show, is how the Europeans' own traumas and ghosts of the periods that they that period that they were living were being projected into this new world or so called new world. So, for example, cannibalism, which is anthropophagy, so which is a practice uh, in some in some uh, uh, American societies is now I mean anthropology 20th century anthropology is trying to call the attention to the fact that maybe anthropology while it existed maybe it wasn't so widespread as you are led to believe when you look at these images and edited books showing grid irons full of human limbs and people buying, uh, buying uh, corpses as if they were going to the supermarket. So maybe this is an exaggeration, and may- maybe this is a-, a magnification caused by the own uh, by the Europeans' own um, fears. And uh, one of those fears was exa- one of those fears was exactly, or one of those anxieties was very much connect- connected to the concept of sacrifice as it is understood by Christianity. Not this I'd like um, I'd like you to,
1: to speak more on this like sacrifice is and a very important term for this book and it's a huge term uh, you know in the world how are we going to use it here like what how do I need to understand sacrifice to make sense of your volume right so
0: this is an excellent question and we thought a lot about that because of course I mean uh, there is a kind of a certain Uh, let's say, commonplace in anthropology, which is to say that sacrifice exists in every single culture of the world. They say, okay, sacrifice is the one, if you need to find one common denominator in every single culture that exists and ever existed, this is sacrifice. Sacrifice understood as the moment of negotiation, of dialogue between humans and non-humans, humans and divinity. Sorry about that. should have switched my phone off, I'm sorry. No worries. So, uh, so the sacrifice understood as a moment, let's say, of a dialogue between div- div- divinity and human. So if this is, if this is what we are, and, and sacrifice is a concept in which very often something is destroyed. Maybe there is death. Maybe there is the death of a human being. Maybe there is the death of an animal. Maybe there is the burning of a plant. A plant is being burned. Maybe there is bloodletting, but not necessarily death. Maybe you destroy uh, a dress or, or, or something that is connected to a person. Maybe you destroy a house. Maybe you burn a house. So sacrifice normally has these two, let's say, main components. On the one hand, a negotiation between humans and non-humans, if you like, or humans and divinity, humans and gods. And on the other hand, destruction, some form of, destru- of destruction. And the sacrifice, the purpose of sacrifice is normally to restore balance in, a, in the community. So it can be an individual situation, but often it is a social situation, a situation in, in which you need to reestablish a lost equilibrium, a lost balance in a given society, in a given community. So, in the case of the Judeo-Christian sacrifice, for example, you have the the, the destruction, the, the sacrifice of the of the um, uh, how what's the English expression of the. Uh, Goat? How do you call it? The the, 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 the sacrificial the, lamb. The sacrificial lamb. Uh, yes, I was looking for uh, an expression. This I think it's called anyway. But you got it. It's the sacrificial lamb that has to be destroyed in order for the to expiate the guilt of the whole community, and of course Christ fulfills this role in the christian tradition which is the direct heir of the judean tradition so so you have a sacrifice that is expiatory you are expiating the guilts of the society of the community in order to reestablish a peace and in order to to uh, to get rid of guilt you know the ancient first guilt so um so this is the but you can also have other forms of sacrifice sacrifice can be propitiatory so they can be sacrifices in which you are asking something to the god they can be sacrifices like in many mesoamerican societies in which you are actually feeding the gods to give the gods the blood they need or the nutrients they need in order to to be alive, and so that the cosmos can continue to work properly. So you have different categories of sacrifice, as you understand. Of course, when Europeans arrived in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the American continent, they have in their mind the Christian idea of sacrifice. So sacrifice is the, the idea of one good or one excellent person, or even the son of God in the case of Christ, dying to save us all. And they name what they see very often, be it among Aztecs or Andeans or Tupi peoples or Muiscas or whatever societies they're encountering, they name, they are very quick to call some rituals sacrifice, but are they really sacrifices? So that's the, that's the question. That's one of the questions that we were asking ourselves all the time. Are they, they are, they are, they are being named as sacrifices, but are they being correctly understood? And very often in the case of some societies, for example, the, the societies that inhabited uh, the coast of present day Brazil, so Portuguese America, those societies didn't, didn't tell us in writing what they thought about their rituals. What we understand of those rituals is what has been written by Europeans. So this is mediated already by their lens. So this is a very big challenge. and I mean, you, we need to approach these sources very critically and combine them with whatever um, whatever uh, material culture we have to try and understand, let's say, the American uh, side of, of conceptions of, of history.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, actually, um, if you don't mind, I, one thing I think that might help our listeners understand is if we could sit for a second with the idea of um, Aztec human sacrifice. Right, um, it's just so big. It's so well talked about. Right, and I'm making air quotes around like Aztec and sacrifice. Right, because it's it's more it's an idea and a legend, like more than it's an actual practice at this point. The way we talk about it, but there's a chapter Aztec excess blood in the heart and the head, right? Um, Patrick Thomas Hayovsky, um, right? And I'm wondering, like, so if I mean what what's going on like how how do the new people how do the conquistadors and the settlers and the people who come understand what they're
0: seeing of this Aztec situation. Is that a good example? Yeah, I mean, it's a very famous example because it is very spectacular the way that that, uh, these sacrifices are taking place. And of course, uh, um, this is where the Spaniards arrive in great numbers and they are negotiating with local societies and they are taking over power very quickly. It is a very strategic place and it is a very, it's actually, uh, let's say, A a very um, sedimented empire that the Spaniards are dealing with there. So yeah, this is the 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 first part of the book. In fact, the part one, sacrificing the Americas, concept, ritual, and transformation, mostly deal with these Hispanic uh, pre-Columbian societies so the Andean societies which is the first paper by Thomas Cummings, Tom so Cummings, and then the two papers that are following but by, by Emily Carion Blaine and Patrick Khachovsky, which is the one that you've just mentioned, that are dealing with the Aztecs. And in fact, Emily Carion Blaine is also thinking about the other way around. So how did the how did the Aztecs understand, how did they perceive the Christian sacrifice, Blood, which is a very common because blood is very central to those aztec sacrifices taking the heart out of people like we see in the ancient codici and but blood is also crucial for christian sacrifice it is all about the blood the blood is, the, the wine is transformed in the in the blood of christ during the mass and it, so it is actually the quintessential christian sacrifice is the, is the is when you actually drink Christ's blood, which is, I mean, one of the things that the many Protestant currents will say this is absurd. This is actually pagan. We This is cannibalistic. You're being even uh, more uh, crazy than the tupinambas and the tupis and who are drinking, who are eating each other. So this is kind of... Um, This is, let's say, the the disputes that are taking place. But of course, I mean, the Aztecs are... uh, There's much discussion from every side about what the Aztec sacrifices meant. There are theories ranging from those who say okay they were they were not half as uh, half as brutal as we are led to believe by the spanish chronicles others saying well they were brutal they did happen there were mass sacrifices there are archaeological findings that corroborate this but uh, the, but the spaniards were clearly clearly putting a magnifier on top of these practices and using it in very in many cases as a justification for vi- for violence because then you have the connection between sacrifice and conversion, which is in the title of the book. So how do you, from the, con- from the concept of sacrifice, how do you move on to uh, justify conversion, conversion to Christianity? And so so as a follow up to your question, the, the, the idea of how to interpret, in this case, Aztec sacrifice is also not... The same for everybody. You have different people. You have different voices. You have conquistadors. You have religious people. You have religious people such as Bartolomé de las Casas saying, "Look, we have to understand these societies. We are being worse than them because we are promote We are not helping them to to actually be better. We are not saving them. We are just enslaving them and committing atrocious acts." So. A man like Bartolomé de las Casas will say, for example, that these sacrifices are actually, they are brutal, they're horrible, but they do indicate that these peoples had the idea, they had the, they got the idea of sacrifice, they understood the main idea. Okay, they were a little bit wrong. It's, that's not with people's cage out and take their hearts out. That's maybe not the best idea. But they do understand the main concept of sacrifice, so they can be thought. And then you have other points of view saying, no, this is just another important discussion is, are they really humans? Are we actually talking about human beings? Because if those, uh, if, depending on how to interpret also uh, these sacrificial acts, often I mean, the same sense of universality that you find often in. Contemporary anthropology with regard to to sacrifice, you also find in some early modern sources. Sources, so you'd say, okay, if these these are sacrificial uh, rituals, that they are kind of relatable to to uh, what we uh, also do here. People just need to be thought, they need to be corrected, but uh, they are. This is possible, or no, this is something completely different. This is something completely separated from us. This has nothing to do with the sacrifice, and then. Well, this is actually a justification for war and destruction, and slavery, of course, to be sure. Sure.
1: Okay. So, like, this is a perfect example of what we're talking about with like miscommunication and how important, like, and how important the rituals of sacrifice and how they're read, like, speaks. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, so you open the book, right? The first bit is about this, and then you move on the materiality of sacrifice conversion and the representation of otherness and then images transcending genres sacrifice between martyrdom and heroism how did you um how did you choose these sections talk to me talk me through developing the framework of this book
0: well this is this is also uh, something that I'd like to talk about because the look the book is actually was a very uh, I don't even know if it is an English expression, but it cooked slowly. Could you say this? Yeah, it's, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. <that makes laughs> sense. don't understand. But we're talking about cannibalism.
1: I think so. <laughs> it, it's a little, it does get a little hinky there. Like we're cooking. Who are we cooking? But yes, absolutely, we had it. Like on, you might um, it just sat on the back burner. We might say we marinated with it. Like there's lots of ways in English to go about that.
0: this cooking metaphor, as we try to. So it was a kind of a slow process because there was a slow maturation because we began with, uh, uh, well, it was always funded by the Villa itati the Harvard Center for Renaissance Studies, which um, they they have funded uh, an exploratory seminar that took place in 2017. which included, it was not open for the public, it was just for us, so for the people, for some of the uh, for the authors, to brainstorm about the concept. So it was not about presentations, but we wanted to kind of, it was an exploratory seminar, so we want actually to explore the field to, to realize what had been done uh, so far and how could we uh, how could we conceptualize a volume like this? So that was the first step, and then we had a conference one year after with the, the same people that participated in the exploratory seminar, plus a couple of others that we've invited, and that because we had felt during the first meeting that they were mi- missing, we had um, uh, missing uh, we had been missing a specialist in music for example, which is a very important dimension because music was used in the missions all the time as a very important tool for conversion processes. And uh, local musics were being elaborated uh, in uh, Christian rituals and baptisms and marriages and funerals, so music was a very very important element, uh, and of course uh, theology or religious philosophy, if we will, because we needed to understand what I, I have been just talking about. So, um, how to understand these theological debates that were taking place. About concerning specifically transubstantiation, which is the transformation of the blood, so of the wine and the host into the blood and the body of Christ. So this is a complex theological discussion. We needed a specialist. So I mean, the first thing that needs to be said is, even though I I I figure as the editor of the volume. All authors were actually editors, co-editors, because we did think about the the, the volume together. We thought about we we discussed very thoroughly what should be said about this topic. Instead of just joining together people with different ideas, people really kind of tailored their articles for this volume um, so that it could respond to the questions that we are all asking ourselves at that point back in the Exploratory Seminary of 2017. So I think that this was a very... Good and collaborative methods. So that's 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 something that I should say. You know, even though I appear as the editor, all authors are really co-editors. We thought about it together, and this was so very kind of. I liked it very much the way it happened, and I'm very thankful to Vile Tati and to the, its director Alina Payne because she believed in this project, which is a project of global art history, and also all the teams. So that was that was incredible their support, and then so the idea was that we would have we have these two concepts, sacrifice, conversion, and we have these specialists from various fields. So we we realized that we couldn't possibly, one one person couldn't possibly uh, deal with all these different aspects because as as we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation, you know, you can't, so those are historiographical fields that are very specific and very well sedimented. So if you're a specialist in Aztec, Uh, history, art history, there you are. I mean, you have, it's a very huge field if you are a a specialist in religion philosophy or a music history, of course, art historians, you know. So we we wanted really to bring together these people and try to put them in dialogue and discuss this concept, which is very transdisciplinary. So, and then the other, so the the different sessions arose already, already in the exploratory seminar, we started to think, for example, session two, the materiality of sacrifice, we wanted to have two scholars working with different, uh, with different points of view with regards to uh, to the academic field. So we have Ansam Schubert, who is a, a, a specialist in religion. And we have Byron Haman, who is a, an anthropologist. I mean, he's an art historian and also an anthropologist. They're both working on the materiality of sacrifice, but from these different fields, you know. So the, the topic is actually very similar, but the approach is different. So th- this is also something that we wanted to, to play with in the book. Then we have the third session in which uh, we had uh, colleagues that are working mostly with the concept of conversion. So how does cr- conversion to Christianity uh, operates. Uh, and then we have, uh, for example, Philippe Canguillen was work, work, working exactly with, with music uh, and, uh, and how the uh, Jesuits in Portuguese America would try to communicate with uh, Native Americans through, through music. You have Paulo Vignolo's paper about a map. We also wanted to include cartography Map making. So we had a paper about that. We have we have uh, Adam Yasiensky working with a very interesting concept of disgust. So how do certain images connected to disgust they are they are co- culturally determined, and how do they operate when it comes to the perception of sacrifice? So you have you know these Christian images of nuns licking the uh, wounds of Christ it may would not cause, cause disgust so why do other things like eating people for example you know like this uh, this, this cultural perception of, of of this very central concept of disgust and we, we have Jens Baumgarten working with uh with uh let's say he's working also a little bit with race And he's using some case studies to understand how conversion processes could intersect with that in Portuguese America. So that was the third session. And then then in this last session, we had... um, the idea of genres so you have certain genres in iconography and in literature so you have the martyrologies for example which are representations of the history of christian martyrs we have you have legal treatises that uh, teach people how to uh, how to torture uh, how to execute i mean again this is a very violent time of history you have uh, pre- uh, illustrated bibles uh, and you have all these different uh, images that are arriving from the Americas about uh, violence, about American violence, about cannibalism mm. and about uh, uh, uh Let's say human sacrifice and hearts being ripped out of chest cases. So you have all these genres that we also have to remember. This is extremely important. That this is the this is the print era era. So this is the era in which printing is a new technology, and you have it's a little bit. Analogous to the internet, I always want to think, because it's a way, it's a moment in which images and books are multiplying, are exploding. So the the European market is being inundated with these prints and books about the Americas, and some of them are very spectacular, a very, uh, let's say, yeah, kind of. yeah, just uh, there is a spectacularization of violence and of of these sensationalist aspects of American, American uh, Native American life. And so you have all these dramas, you have the travel logs with images of uh, American societies, you have the martyrologies, you have the legal treatises, you have the printed, the illustrated Bibles. And sometimes you see some Codes, some visual codes that can that can navigate and that can that can cross pollinate, you know, between these genres, and this is something extraordinary. So, how does the audience perceive? So, you know, for example, you have a saint like, like Saint Lawrence that is uh, that is burned. You know, he's executed on the gridiron, and you have images that are very similar to those representing Uh, two-piece societies uh, cooking and eating people, you have the same, sometimes the same gesture, the same composition, the editing of the image is similar. So in this last session, we were trying to see how these visual codes could navigate between genres in order to re-signify one another. In a, maybe to me, they, they look familiar to an European audience, but they are dislocated. So what does this dislocation mean? What does it operate? What kind of results? And this is very complex because often they are designed to mean something to an European audience in the context of reform and counter-reform and European wars of religion. So very often you are, you have for example one for example you have one martyrology one 16th century martyrology which is a representation of uh, people being martyred that incorporates uh, image a visual codes like for example uh, like for example the grid iron or people are cooked uh, into into European martyrdoms in order to equate those who are committing the martyrdom to savages in America, you know? So you you have this kind of parallelisms. They are very complex because people actually have an internal... Europe has an internal agenda. There are wars going on. And in this sense, very often, the American societies can serve as a metaphor, as a rhetorical figure valid to designate the savage within, so the authority outside can serve to designate the authority or the otherness and the savagery within. And political discourses very often use this this kind of rhetoric. So this is the one thing that also that we wanted to show a little bit in these four papers in the last session.
1: Okay, yeah. I see how this all works together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see like this very central question, right? And I keep coming back to this miscommunication, misunderstanding. And then pointed, purposeful misconstruction, right? People misconstruing the images for their own good. And again, no no surprise in this incredibly violent era that then the results are also incredibly violent, right?
0: Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. The results are incredibly violent, and it kind of, it is a, a, A topic that is can be very um, off putting, can be very disconcerting. The images that accompany the book are images that, oh, God, yeah, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. scary. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, you know, and that article on disgust. Um, it was, it was, it's a great essay and it really made me think about just, you know, how completely arbitrary our cultural constructions are that like nuns licking wounds is delightful, right? It's a beautiful and sensuous thing, yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right. It's, it's really interesting. But then also I am a product of that environment and I found myself being disgusted sometimes. Yeah, like, some there yes. these are a lot, um, that must have been fun. So, actually, I'd like to talk a little bit about, like, the, just your process. Um, I'm assuming. I mean, it sounds like the weekend of Ditati was outstanding, uh, or the, the the seminar Dittati being brilliant. Um, how how did you go about choosing your contributors? Like, how how did that process happen? Did you invite them, or are these people who just came along?
0: Well, uh, you know, there aren't many, that many of us working in this field. <laughs> You know, As I, because in, in fact, what happens, I mean, to go back to what I said before, I mean, um, so the Renaissance, of course, is a very well-established field. Uh, nowadays, there are many people working with the so-called global Renaissance. So trying mm-hmm. to understand uh, the global impact of the Renaissance, how also maybe uh, images and, li- and and discourses coming from outside of Europe could have impacted Europe. So not just Europe exporting models, but also receiving. Um, also, uh, people working with how different centers, let's say, trying to problematize the concept of center and periphery in terms of, okay, so you could have Even in the Americas, you had centers and peripheries and things, and you had, let's say, uh, uh, connections between, uh, centers or cities or art production sorry, centers of production of art and culture that not necessarily go through Europe. So this is a process that has been happening. I mean, there are people working with this. And then, of course, you have people working with colonial history for a long time and people that have been doing a fantastic job with this regard. And I'm not at all saying that what we're doing is something completely new in terms of historiography. We have very, very extraordinarily important uh, 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 how do you call it? predecessors? Is it the correct word? Yeah. So that have been working before us. But to be honest, when you go out and when you start reading people, so you end up reading the people that you know, uh, naturally uh, are working uh, in this uh, intersection and that are working with this concept. So you get to know them naturally in conferences and mail exchanges. So uh, the the, the idea, it it began, in fact, with um, two colleagues of mine that are working in Latin America, there are also uh, uh, contributors of the last session, Carmen Fernández Salvador from Ecuador, from Quito, and Patricia Salamea from uh, uh, Los Andes. We, thought, I mean, we met each other some more than 10 years ago, we became friends, we worked together in many, many projects, including one project that had also been financed by uh, Vida called the Italian Renaissance as Seen from Latin America because we wanted to, uh, the three of us had been trained as Renaissance scholars, the Patricia and Carmen in the United States, me in Europe in Germany. And so we thought, okay, of course there weren't so many. When I was a student, there, were, there weren't any uh, PhD possibilities in art history in Brazil. Now there are, but 20, 25 years ago, there weren't. So I had to go abroad and they also, they did the same. And so we thought, okay, so what does a Brazilian art historian or an Equatorian art historian, Colombian art historian has to say about the Italian Renaissance? Of course, we we are Italian Renaissance scholars, but the way we perceive the Italian Renaissance is different. Of course, even though we have those uh, internet-based networks nowadays, the things I see every day when I go to work, the things I've seen in my childhood, the books I've read, are different from those of an Italian or a U.S. American. So how does it how does it change? So we we ha- we figured this um, conference, which was held in Bogotá in 2013, called the Italian Renaissance as seen from Latin America. And there we contacted some of the uh, already some of the contributors. So that was a begin, I would say. So, because also the book, and this is also something that I'd like to say, we have 13 contributors and six of the contributors are based in Latin America, because this is also something that we wanted to make sure of. So we said, okay, we don't want, I mean, of course, it's not, it's, we need, above all, we're looking for scholarly excellency, but you know, we were really trying very hard to promote a kind of geographical balance and say, what are people saying also outside of the North Atlantic uh, axis? What are people saying in Latin America? So, and then we, so I'd say in the years that follow, we started making contacts, and the two of them are really kind of. Co-editors really to the de facto of this volume because they were incredibly. I mean, we were working together collaboratively all the way. So uh, yeah, and then we got and then we each knew people. So we were trying to be, be, bring those people together to the exploratory seminar. Many of them I already knew. Many of them, most of them, all of them I already read and admired as scholars. And it was very friendly. It was very, I think that this group was very fun to work with. I mean, we kind of, we we, we met twice in Florence. It's wonderful. We, We had a very good time. And I think the chats you have, we had the chance to be together for a couple of days, have dinner together, have a glass of wine together. And of course this also helps and that was, uh, that was fundamental. And the support of the video was very, very uh, solid and very friendly all, all the time. So that's that also the book response to the creation, to the, to the wish to create a network. Let's say a transatlantic and transamerica pan-american yeah. network. So, this brought, we need to, of course, it can expand even more. And I mentioned it in the introduction. It would be lovely to work in the future with, uh, with cultural negotiations, including, for example, the Yoruba nations in Africa, to include Asia. And we thought about it at some point shall we include Africa and Asia? But then we thought that it would be very difficult to do it. we would, let's, that's, that's for the moment. Keep our focus, and we already have enough. <laughs>
1: yeah, this is this is a very good collection, and that yeah. needs to be another equally good collection. Yes, like, uh, yes, well, that's that we. That. That's
0: yeah. what we think. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to to also say that we are, um, there's a mix of scholars in terms also of age in this group, there are people who are mid-careers, people who are more advanced, people who are uh, younger, so uh, this is also something we thought about, okay, let's try to do something, not just with the, uh, let's say, famous scholars. I mean, there are, there are a couple of very famous scholars in this book and who have been wonderful, and also some younger people. So we thought that that was also uh, important because we, want, we would like to make sure that this, is, this field is going to be, there's going to be a continuation for this kind of studies. And of course, this publication will hopefully, yeah, maybe dialogue with other ones in the future about other geographical, including other geographical areas. That's what we dreamt about. That's what uh, would be wonderful.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the goal of an edited volume is you create a community and um, and you bring these different lenses onto a central question. Great job. Okay, but I got to ask, were there any problems? Anything go wrong? Any, any, any... Honestly,
0: uh, no. The only thing that went wrong is that, well, during, of course, we, we were one year behind schedule because of the pandemic. Because if you remember, the pandemic began very strongly in Italy, and the editorial procedure was taking place in Italy. So for about six months, everybody was a bit kind of yeah, disconcerted. We were all. I mean, you know. <laughs> no, I mean the world was disconcerted. The world was disconcerted. But that was the only negative. I mean, I don't. To be honest, I mean, I, I think that the support of the villa, the, the the colleagues, the way everything went was just was just perfect. I can't imagine anything being better. That the, the colleagues from the Villa Itati were absolutely. Amazing. I, I'd also like to mention Thomas Gruber, who is the uh, uh, assistant to Elena to Payne and also the responsible for the publications. People from the Officina Libraria, which is the partner of Harvard University Press. I mean, I, I, I even as hard as I think, I cannot think of anything negative to say about. Except for the pandemic and except for the fact that, yeah, there was, we had to stop and that was a bit anticlimactic because we were kind of taking off with the publication and then we had to halt. Uh, but that, that is a kind of force majeure uh, reason. There's nothing to be done there. And uh, but we were really happy about the, the way it come. I think that all authors were happy. We we're just celebrating. So yeah, finding excuses to go to Florence again and for a book launch—that no, yeah. would be that's wonderful. Rough. Yeah, that's a hard one.
1: No, okay. wonderful. I'm so glad it worked. Um, would you recommend doing a volume?
0: If someone. <laughs> a hell of a lot of work, <laughs> but once, once you once you have it in your hands, it's so beautiful. And I personally like. I mean, we all. I think we all kind of sometimes have these moments of thinking: Should I try to focus on my own book and, let's say, my own author book and then and an edited volume? And I think that they're just both different expressions. And to have to have in hands a, a, the fruit of a collective effort is so gratifying. It's so beautiful. It's, it's different from having your, I mean, it's it's two different things. I, I would recommend it. Yes, I think that as long as you have a good team and a, as long as you're in a good terms, with, you know, scholars can be difficult sometimes. This group of scholars was not. They were wonderful. And, uh, and uh, you know, yeah, if you're lucky enough to, ha- to find the good colleagues and the people who are not just brilliant, but also not divas, you know, because you know you, you know how scholars are yeah, yeah, <laughs> sometimes. Sure. sometimes. So people who are willing to to collaborate, to accept to accept also your uh, your let's say um, comments and not be uh, you know uh, accept that you are working collectively because that's the challenge of an edited volume i think otherwise it's just putting many papers together yeah, but is. if you make sure that people are actually in tune with the central concepts of the book and uh, then i think it's a, it's very it's a very gratifying experience i am i'm over the moon with <laughs> this book definitely so-
1: yeah i see that Vale la pena like right. <laughs> exactly. yeah. Vale la pena vale okay. All right. So uh, I've taken up so much of your time almost. I oh, just have one more question, which is what is, what are you Maria working on on your own right now?
0: Right. So I, I just, I'm just coming back from, from the United States. I spent two, uh, six months uh, at the uh, Getty as a guest caller, which was absolutely fantastic. And there I was also very thankful for the, for having had this opportunity. And I have started to do a research about the cultural impact of epidemic diseases in the American continent. And this is something I mentioned in the introduction and something, ah, to go back to your question, if some, if there's something went wrong, not something that went wrong, but there is something that I am a bit mortified about, is that I didn't think about including a historian of medicine in the volume. Person working because um, I, I guess before COVID nineteen we didn't we didn't think seriously enough about the impact of epidemic disease diseases and conversion processes. Of course, if you have societies that are in which ninety percent of the population has been killed, which is something that has happened in some places, some moments, times, then of course all of these courses we're talking about the, the the power struggle is so deeply affected that you, I mean, you have to consider it as a historian, also as a cultural historian. So, and I hadn't, and I guess many of us, many of us uh, dealing with history, you know, like when we were COVID-19 made us think about the impact of epidemic diseases in other moments of history. So I I, 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 I regretted the fact that I hadn't included it. And, and, you know, I was sorry because that would have been a very important addition. So uh, I, I decided to, to, to study how uh, how the epidemic diseases impacted processes of conversion in uh, Portuguese America. And I started doing it in the last month, so it's very it's a new project, and this is where I'm I'm I, I this is what I would like to be doing in the next couple of years.
1: I'm so excited to read about that. I'm so excited for that book. And uh please, please don't only talk to me about it. I mean other people, but do an interview <laughs> with me about that. All right. Thank you so much, Maria Bárbara. Professor of Art History at the State University of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, it sounds so much nicer when you say the name of your hometown.
0: Uh, <laughs> you say it very very well, perfectly. Thank you.
1: All right. So that is Sacrifice and Conversion in the Early Modern Atlantic World. Out this year, Harvard University Press. There's a link on our website at the New Books Network. And thank you for listening, listeners. And once again, thank you, Maria. Thank you so much,